It's the 16th of March, 2018, and this is a Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com, and this week we have big-time rheumatology lessons from Tales from the Crips, the Intestinal Crips, the Friendly Skies, and, of all things, the hips of hockey players. This week in the news we have talk of drug-induced syndromes. Now, I don't know about you, but during my training, drug-induced lupus was sort of a big deal. There was a lot of talk about it. There were some cases of it. It's kind of exciting when you, when you saw it, when you talked about it, when you learned about it. I haven't seen a good case of drug-induced lupus in many, many years. But what we have heard a lot about in the last year are these immune-related adverse events associated with checkpoint inhibitors, these new miracle magical drugs in cancer. Well, there's yet another report in the literature this week on a meta-analysis of several of these drugs, novolimumab, pembrolizumab, and atezolizumab. It's even hard for rheumatologists to talk about new MABs. But anyway, when they reviewed the existing literature that's out there, they showed what the predominance was as far as these immune-related adverse events that have an autoimmune nature. At the top of the list actually is hypothyroidism with an eight-fold increased risk. Next is pneumonitis with a five-fold increased risk, colitis with a three-fold increased risk, hypophysitis, not something we usually talk about, but is very common with this syndrome, and 3.4-fold increased risk in rash, a double risk uh, in these people. Also leading the way as far as symptoms that are commonly seen in these patients are fatigue, diarrhea, and 20%. And probably around 20% of more of our patients that uh, will present to us will present because of arthralgia or back pain associated with the checkpoint inhibitors. So it's a nice review. You can look at that to find out more information. Again, we have a lot on the website about this topic. From Science This Week is a very interesting discussion on the pathobiont Enterococcus gallinarum. What is a pathobiont? A pathobiont, it's, no, it's not a, a faculty member that you're working with. It is an, a normal microbe that lives in symbiosis, but under certain circumstances can become pathologic. In this case, the um, gut microbe, Enterococcus gallinarum, in certain situations just lives in the gut, but it has the ability to become invasive, and in certain um, environments or in certain genetic backgrounds may lead to autoimmunity. In this particular study, they actually showed that the Enterococcus does lead, and they use a, a mouse model for this, they looked at and they specifically used a mouse model that has a genetic predisposition to lupus and autoimmunity. And when they, the, they were um, colonated with Enterococcus gallinarum, they actually had tissue invasion and that led to uh, pathogenic autoantibodies and Treg cells and really the onset of what was an autoimmune syndrome, not quite lupus, the way they played it out. It's been the same bug has been associated with autoimmune hepatitis in animal models. More interestingly, in this particular report, they showed that if you treat the animals that have been infected with vancomycin, you could you vancomycin, you can prevent mortality and autoimmunity by suppressing the growth of E. gallinarum and eliminating those pathogenic autoantibodies and T cells. So it's a nice model whereby the microbiome becomes disordered, disrupted in someone who or in a species that may have a risk for lupus-like disease. This follows well on the coattails of the report that was done at ACR by Greg Silverman showing you some of the microbiome changes that may be associated with lupus and specifically with lupus nephritis. You can find that on the website. Uh, there was a nice um, video by Greg uh, on our website that you can look at. 
A new study about GPA shows in Italy, they studied a cohort of 89 patients and specifically looked at, it was a much larger cohort of, G, of GPA patients, but specifically they looked at 89 patients who had uh, ENT involvement. And they found ENT involvement in 72% of their patients. Such patients who had ENT GPA tended to be younger and they tended to have less renal disease. Important because you don't want renal disease with GPA. The most dominant uh, of the ENT symptoms were sinonasal symptoms seen in almost 60% of patients. And of the otic manifestations, 35% either had otitis media or otomastoiditis. So overall, it turns out that ENT involvement predicted better outcomes with GPA, milder disease, a lower overall risk of renal disease, and overall better mortality. So something to be hopeful for when managing and seeing patients with GPA. An interesting study comes from Glasgow. This is a study that was actually just reported this past week at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery meeting. Uh, and this is a, a study that comes from uh, the Golden Jubilee National Hospital in Glasgow, where they studied the impact of how patients following their lower limb arthroplasties, hip or knee arthroplasties, how they traveled when they came for their follow-up visits to the National Hospital. So they looked at patients who traveled by land, and I'll assume that means trains and, and cars and whatnot, and versus those who traveled by plane. And since it was Glasgow, the trips weren't that long. The average time was only about 72 minutes in the air, and then such patients had on average six such flights. But when they looked at the overall numbers, and again, all these people post-operatively were um, being uh, prophylaxed with anticoagulants of some sort. And despite them all being treated the same, the introduction of air travel uh, increased the odds of developing a venous thromboembolic event. So they looked at both PEs and DVTs, and the overall rate for those that were traveling by land was 0.58%. The rate for those who traveled by air was 1.65%, almost a threefold increase in the risk of VTEs uh, in patients who had lower limb arthroplasties uh, followed in Glasgow. This is one of the first studies that should show this. The question is, what are you going to do about it? On the website I wrote, you know, I, having had bilateral knee replacements, I usually wear compression stockings when I'm going to be on a flight um, that's to any more than an hour. And this, now the utility of that is really not known. Um, but I think that the idea of instructing your patients to maybe have some protective measures, and there are a lot of things you can do, getting up and walking around, exercises, maybe even using anticoagulants for short-term use, um, these should be considered until really good data comes along because one of the hazardous, most hazardous outcomes in patients with uh, um, knee or hip replacement is the uh, complication of a venous thromboembolic event. A nice study comes from the, from the BSRBR, the British Biologics Registry. Almost 20,000 patients followed for over 106,000 patient years, meaning these patients were roughly followed for more than five years of follow-up. And they looked at the incidence of opportunistic infections uh, in this cohort. They found and it specifically excluded patients with TB. And what they did find was that um, uh, overall, the rate of opportunistic infections was 134 per 100,000, or to put it in a number you might understand better, is 1.3 per 1,000 patient years. Again, that's a number I keep bringing up in other reports that these very rare events that people are very, very concerned about still have about a one in 1,000 risk. 
That is the risk of an opportunistic infection in RA patients going on a biologics. Interestingly, they showed that excluding TB, there's no real difference in the rate of opportunistic infections when you look at the different biologic classes, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 inhibitors, et cetera. It's, you know, across the board, they're really about the same. The only differences were a few. That pneumocystis urovecchi uh, infections were higher with rituximab compared to TNF inhibitors, and that rituximab patients actually had a lower rate of TB compared to the TNF inhibitors. And maybe the most dramatic is the dramatic fall in TB events. In 2002, the rate of TB events was 783 per 100,000, and it dropped to 38 by 2015 per 100,000. Now, again, the population rate in the United States and the UK is about four to five um, uh, per 100,000 for just TB. So these rates are still elevated even in, in 2015 at 38, but it's certainly down dramatically compared to that in 2002. Speaks a lot for your current practices of screening uh, and making sure patients don't have TB prior to the initiation of such therapy. There's an, an interesting report that finally appeared in the literature that was covered in great depth at the ACR meeting and really raised a number of eyebrows, and that is the finding of bone marrow edema in elite athletes um, when you're looking at the SI joints. And specifically, these investigators looked at uh, 20 recreational runners and 22 professional ice hockey players, and they made them exercise, do a vigorous routine, and they had uh, before and after uh, MRIs. And specifically, they were looking for evidence of sacroiliitis as measured by bone marrow edema, one of the criteria uh, by ASAS, the, uh, the organization that's made criteria for the study of patients with spondylitis. Overall, the, uh, these elite athletes, these active athletes, found a rate of 30 to 41% who had new bone marrow lesions, bone marrow edema following their exercise, suggesting that this may not be as specific a finding um, and that its uh, utility may be questioned. What they didn't find in these people were erosive changes, and that may be the distinguishing feature between patients who have axial spondyloarthritis and, and athletes or people who are involved in vigorous exercise. Um, Plaquenil we know is uh, vitamin P for all our patients with lupus. The study comes from uh, the Annals of Rheumatic Disease and the lupus um, cohort followed um, by Michelle Petrie and others, very large cohort, the number was something like uh, 1,349 patients followed at the Hopkins uh, Lupus Clinic longitudinally. And what they looked at were the rates of flares in lupus patients um, prior to surgery, during, uh, prior to uh, pregnancy, um, with pregnancy, and in the postpartum period. And what they showed was that uh, lupus patients have an increased rate of lupus flares during pregnancy. In fact, a 59% increase rate of flares. This is not surprising, but it's an important number to know if you want to quote to your patients what the rate of flare, what the odds of flaring are. Maybe more important from the study was that uh, being on Plaquenil dropped the rates of flare significantly. If you are not on Plaquenil, the hazard ratio of getting a flare during pregnancy was 1.83, but if you were on Plaquenil, this dropped to 1.26. Again, further evidence that it's wise to continue hydroxychloroquine throughout the pregnancy in your lupus patients. Uh, lastly, there's a study from the New England Journal that's published just uh, yesterday, uh, the CARE study. This was uh, published both in uh, several journals and comes out from the cardiology uh, uh, national meeting that's going on. This is a study of 6190 gout patients who have a history of cardiovascular disease and therefore at high risk for cardiovascular events. And they're specifically looking at the development of 
a cardiovascular endpoint in patients who are either taking fibuxostat 40 milligrams a day or allopurinol 300 milligrams a day. And those patients were allowed to adjust the dose of their, their urate lowering therapy upwards to achieve a target um, serum urate less than six. Um, the purpose of the study was to get to the number of 624 adjudicated cardiovascular events. The primary endpoint was a combination of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and unstable angina with urgent revascularization. Turns out that the primary endpoint was not different in these patients who received one drug or the other. They were followed uh, for a median of 32 months and as long as 84 months. A lot of the patients were followed for five or six years. After 32 months, you could, though, you could start to see a difference between the fibuxostat group and the allopurinol group that the lines would start to diverge as far as developing some of these events. It turns out that the significant difference was found in cardiovascular de death, which was 34% higher in the fibuxostat group, and all-cause mortality, all deaths, which was 22% higher with fibuxostat. As you know, the FDA put out a warning that they're studying this data with fibuxostat, and that more to follow. This is some of that data that, they're, that they were alluding to in that warning that we spoke about a few, uh, about two months ago. Um, this data follows the history of the of fibuxostat. As you know, in the drug development uh, and when this was up for approval by the FDA, they initially um, uh, gave them a, a complete response letter, I believe, or they delayed the decision and called for another study because in the early studies, patients that were on fibuxostats did have more cardiovascular events than patients that were on allopurinol. So they made the company go back and do a very specific study called the CONFIRM study, uh, which was a similar study as is this CARE study, um, but it showed the exact opposite of the original data. It showed actually there were higher rates of cardiovascular events in allopurinol than with fibuxostat, and that led to the approval of the drug, and it's being marketed since 2009. Again, I think a lot of people feel fibuxostat is a, a, a very useful drug. Some of the caveats in this study are that there was a high dropout rate, about 60% of patients dropped out before the end of the study, that the flare rates between the two drugs were about the same, and that fibuxostat patients were more likely to achieve a lower urate less than 5.0 compared to allopurinol patients. Now, again, dose escalations were allowed, and I'm not sure I believe that 40 milligrams of fibuxostat is equal to 300 of allopurinol in potency, but in both groups, about 40% of patients increased their doses to achieve a target serum urate level. So it remains to be seen what the long-term success is of fibuxostat. As you know, this was a, a, a Takeda drug, and now I believe it's going off patent or it's been off patent. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the effects are of this kind of data is going to be uh, in the long run. I'll leave you with a quote or a tweet that I posted this week. A goal without a plan is just a wish. This comes from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, um, and I heard this at a presentation uh, in Prague last week by Christine Bundy, a psychologist who was giving a great talk on motivational interviewing. Uh, she reminded us that goals are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Again, a goal without a plan is just a wish. That's it for Room Now this week. Go to the website to find these links and more information on whatever hit your fancy in this report. Uh, we'll be back next week with more reports from RoomNow.com.